Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season eight, episode four, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 2016 South Korean zombie action film Train to Busan. It was directed by Yeon Sang-ho and written by Park Joo-suk. The film stars Gong Yoo, Jung Yoo-mi, and Ma Dong-seok. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Are you still here? Okay, cool. Then let's get this morning started. So Train to Busan was director Yeon Sung-ho's first live-action film. He actually got his start in animation and directed over nine animated films before he even started working on Train to Busan. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, and according to an interview with Gene No, quote, the idea for Train to Busan occurred to Yeon as he was making what is now called the Train to Busan prequel, Soul Station, an animation that focuses on homeless people mistaken for zombies because of social prejudice. Yan said, quote, With Train to Busan, I just came up with the idea of a psychological thriller about what happens the day after Soul Station, unquote. The production company suggested that Yan direct it, but that it also be live action. So, that's kind of neat. Like, they were just like, we want you to do it, but you have to make a live action. And he's like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. Okay, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and technically, Soul Station uh, would be a predecessor, not a prequel. Because there was no, like, prequels are made after a film has been made. Does that make sense? Like, Star yes. Wars, like, the prequels came after the originals. Yes. So this would technically be a predecessor, not a prequel. Okay. There you go. Some movie stuff. Movie <laughs> trivia 101, I guess. <laughs> Perf. <laughs> so according to No, quote, Yon says, taking a primarily Western genre and creating something that mainstream Korean audiences wouldn't find off-putting or ridiculous was a key focus. He also said, quote, putting a lot of zombie makeup on Koreans doesn't work, so I focused on movement, using bone-breaking choreography and looking at how we could shoot hordes of zombies and even their shadows inside trains and train stations. Zombies can be stylish and horrifying with the right mise-en-scene. Unquote. Fancy. That's so fancy. (laughs) In an interview, Yan in the interview, Yan expanded on this by saying that if local films aren't grounded in reality, Korean audiences won't take them seriously. And he said, quote, the important thing is how we can make it. How can we make it Korean? Not just with design, but with story. There are plenty of ways to take social circumstances and access them in the script. Unquote. And funnily enough, actor Ma Dong-seok, who plays the man with the pregnant wife, used to be the personal trainer of Gong Yoo, who plays the main character. 
What? Yeah, so they knew each other already. Oh my god, that's so funny. Okay, so Train to Busan was a massive, massive hit. According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, quote, Train to Busan grossed 93.1 million worldwide, and it became the highest grossing Korean film in Malaysia, Hong Kong, and Singapore, and it recorded more than 11 million moviegoers in South Korea, unquote. And their budget was only about $8.5 million, by the way. So, oh, my God. That's <laughs> and incredible. And it made a ton of money. Yes. Ah. According to Johnny Gazmonic, quote, one of the most compelling, exciting, and captivating action horror hybrids in years. It grabs the heart as well as the soul, speeding to a satisfying emotional climax, unquote. And according to Katie Smith Wong, Quote, in visual terms, the film is mesmerizing. The actual horror scenes are not overly gory, and the chase scenes are excellently choreographed and filled with pure adrenaline, leaving you waiting for the next twist and turn with bated breath, unquote. Oh, so true. Right. So with that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. Fund manager Seok Woo is a cynical workaholic and divorced father. His daughter, Soo An, wants to spend her wants to spend her birthday with her mother in Busan. Seok Woo sees a video of Suan attempting to sing Aloha Oi at her singing recital and succumbing to stage fright as a result of his absence. Overcome with guilt, he decides to indulge Suan's wish and take her to Busan. They board the KTX 101 at Seoul Station en route to Busan. Other passengers include working-class man Sang Hwa and his pregnant wife Seong Kyung, Selfish COO Yon Suk and a high school baseball team, including Yong Guk and his cheerleader girlfriend Jin Hee, elderly sisters In Gil and Jong Gil, and a homeless stowaway. As the train departs, an infected woman boards, becomes a zombie, and attacks a train attendant. The infection spreads rapidly through the train. Seok Woo learns that the zombie plague started at a factory connected to his business and selfishly plans to use his military connections to get to safety. The group escapes to another car and locks the doors. Reports make it known that an epidemic is spreading across the country. After the train stops at Daejeon Station, the surviving passengers find the city overrun by zombie soldiers and hastily retreat back to the train, splitting up into different train cars in the chaos. Suan finds out about Seok Woo's self-serving plans and bitterly cries and tells him, you don't care about anyone but yourself. That's why mom left. Stung, Seok Woo begins helping others. The military establishes a quarantine zone near Busan and the conductor heads the train there. Seok Woo, Sang Hwa, and Yong Guk, who have become separated from their loved ones in a different car, fight their way to them through the zombies. Once regrouped, they struggle through the horde to the front car, where the rest of the passengers are sheltered. At Yon Suk's instigation, the passengers prevent the survivors from entering, fearing that they are infected. Sang Hwa sacrifices himself to give the others time to enter the car by force. Yon Suk and the passengers demand that the survivors isolate themselves in the vestibule. However, Jong Gil, Disgusted at the passenger's selfishness and despairing the loss of her sister, who has become a zombie, allows the zombies to enter and kill them all. Ironically, because the passengers had forced Seok Woo's group to isolate, this group remained safe. 
Yan Suk also escapes by hiding in the bathroom. A blocked train at East Daegu train station forces the survivors to stop and search for another train. Yan Suk pushes Jin Hee to the zombies to save himself, and she is bitten. Heartbroken, Yan Guk stays with her until she returns, until she turns and kills him. Meanwhile, a flaming locomotive derails and the survivors are trapped under a train full of zombies. As the zombies drop by breaking the windows, the homeless man sacrifices himself so that Seok Wu has time to save Su An and Seong Kyung through a small hole under the derailed train. After fighting off the zombies, the three board a working locomotive and encounter Yan Suk, who is on the verge of turning into a zombie. Seok Wu manages to throw him off the train, but is bitten in the process. He teaches Seong Kyung how to operate the train and says goodbye to his sobbing daughter, throwing himself off the train before he turns. Due to another train blockage, Su An and Seong Kyung stop at a tunnel. They continue following the tracks on foot. Snipers stationed on the other side prepare to shoot at what they believe to be zombies. Upon hearing Suan sobbing and singing Aloha Oi for her father, they lower their weapons, realizing the pair are human. Ugh. What a sad, sad film. Oh my god, I know! It's... <laughs> it broke me the first time I watched it. For real. I can't believe you made me watch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> you, you text me and Abby Abby texted me everyone and she said um I need a goddamn nap after watching that movie. <laughs> Seriously, I was like emotionally scarred and just oh, it was so sad, so sad. I uh, know. If you don't love this movie, you're a heartless bastard. Like No, it's <laughs> true. This movie was so excellent. Oh my god. Yes. Well, thank you, Abby, for that lovely plot summary. Oh, you are welcome. <laughs> so the Bechdel test. Yes, it passes a few times, which is nice. Yay! Let's do Nancy's Dream Team test, shall we? Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? No, it wasn't. Did a woman write, direct, producer, edit the film? No. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? Yes. Were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? No. Okay. So let's talk about the vast social commentary in Train to Busan. There's a lot. There's a lot going on here. Yes. Oh, my God. So much. I guess I didn't realize the hierarchy of people and how their country is structured. Oh, yeah. But, but like, it really isn't so unlike the United States, like, in my opinion. Um mm-hmm. In an article for Filmosophy, author Jack Buchanan says, Social hierarchy in South Korea is particularly complex and ruthless. Conformity and social expectations, place of birth, job, place of residence, accent, and clothing all factor into the endless judgment of status in the country, which arises from a complex web of history and development that is culminated in an autocratic work-driven society that pays the majority of its workforce with large numbers of migrant laborers that are distinguished from expats, and another example of hierarchy, a severely low wage. Mm. In such a consumerist society, social mobility becomes a primary motivation. And in South Korea, according to Seoul-based economics professor Ju Byung-gi, the best way to get rich currently is to be born that way. Yeah. 
Inequality of opportunity will make it increasingly difficult for poor children to move up, which is expected to lead to more conflict between social classes. The country has industrialized so quickly precisely because there is little chance of social mobility. Much like the separate carriages in the train, when someone shuts the door in your face, there's little chance of becoming anything other than one more drone in the horde of ignored working class people behind you, unquote. So in 2016, uh, when the film was released and when our world was starting to shift after the election of Donald Trump, I think that ruthlessness became even more apparent in America. Like, we've always known that there's a class system here. The rich seem to get richer while the poor struggle for basic human needs every single day. Right, yeah. And while I do think that this is true in the States, like, the American dream might actually be a nightmare, but it's, it is possible to achieve for some people. Right, yeah. It is achievable, but it's it's not easy. And it's, it's way easier for cisgendered white men. So, Yeah. And the scene at the beginning of the film when the COO says to Suan, make sure you study or you'll end up like him. Mm. He's talking about the, the homeless man who boards the right. train. Yeah. Her response is that her mother taught her that men like him are unkind, basically. The, the COO. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that, I think, speaks to the way younger generations are raising their kids i think like in our experience we place more value on like human connection and doing the right thing than previous generations maybe who were coming up in a time of great economic growth and they lost sight of what it really means to contribute something to the world and you know i'm just gonna add something real quick that's really interesting because i just thought of this the sisters who are older kind of make a comment about how people will just oh they'll riot about anything well yeah they'll they'll protest anything nowadays i just thought that was super relevant you know like it this film ages well because the topics that it discusses are going to be issues that we're going to be dealing with for probably forever so i just thought that was really funny how these these older women were like oh People, the young people will just protest anything nowadays. If they were, you know, if this was happening back when we were younger, like they would have been educated or re-educated. And I'm like, whoa. Like it's really interesting. Yes, for sure. And like, I don't mean that like, I don't know. That's not to say that everyone felt that way or that like every member of older generations only placed value on like money or job potential or career growth. But I mean, there's a clear line that's drawn between the generations in this film, like you are saying. And I think that we're seeing that now in Trump's America, where we are starting to place more value on human life than we are jobs or money, or we're at least starting to realize like, okay, like, this kind of ideology needs to like die off with the older generations because really only thinking about the economy or how much money is to be made landed us in the predicament we're in now where money takes precedence over human life. Right. I love that. And, you know, according to Korean film critic Yeon Sung Yoon, who writes for the Busan Daily, quote, we don't trust anyone but ourselves, unquote. And in the film, those in charge, 
and the media, quote, are easily manipulated by others, unquote, she says. And then according to Elise Hugh, quote, the film blames corporate callousness for the death toll. The government covers up the truth or is largely absent. And the crew, rather than rescue passengers, it follows the wishes of a businessman. Mm-hmm. These themes are particularly resonant in South Korea, which in 2014, which was just two years before this film came out, faced national tragedy after 300 people, mostly teenagers, died when a ferry overturned in the sea. Investigators found the ferry's corporate owners overloaded it to save money. Oh, my God. And the captain and crew got into lifeboats without rescuing passengers. (sighs) News media towing the government line originally reported that everyone survived. The Korean president's whereabouts on that day are still unexplained. Unquote. Oh my God. And that's exactly what you just talked about how we are putting economy over human life. And Jack Buchanan, who you quoted earlier, Abby, also talks about how the elderly sisters in the film represent Korea's view on the supposed weak and expendable. He says, quote, the sisters are often left to their own devices, never much a concern to anyone as they also struggle to survive. Their dependency on each other and their companionship is an endearing part of the film until the death of one of them. The surviving sister commits suicide, surrendering herself to the horde behind them, unquote. And, you know, I think it's interesting to note that not only does she commit death by suicide, but she also advertently kills the selfish train passengers that caused her sister's death. So she is able to get her revenge on the society that left her and her sister to basically fend for themselves. Oh, yeah. And Buchanan goes on to say, quote, contrasted to the concern placed on the well-being of the young Suwon and the tragedy of the deaths of the young baseball team members, the deaths of the sisters, while sad, are understood in the film as simply something that happened. It made sense for the elderly woman to follow her sister since she was now alone, and director Yeon Sung-ho paints a somber portrait of a society represented by those in the carriage that would rather this happen to the elderly ladies than having to focus on helping them, unquote. That is rough. (laughs) Yeah. So I also want to kind of talk about the train while we are talking about like the social commentary of the film. Yeah. I think having this all take place on a train is genius. And a lot of people have talked about how this film is basically Snowpiercer, but with zombies. And like... There are some similarities, but I think that that's an unfair comparison. Yeah. Um, But the train is so great because the train is taking them to safety, right? But at the same time, it's a ticking time bomb of destruction because it's been infected as well. Yeah. And there's also this wonderful metaphor attached to it that fits with what we were just discussing. The closed doors that separate the cars, like the carriages, are very much a metaphor for a closed off society. Each door, like, shields you from the other passengers who are maybe just a bit lower than you. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah, and so according to Tara Edwards, quote, the second mark of the upper-class criticism that trends in South Korean disaster cinema is that of the high price that is often paid by the upper class despite their attempts to insulate themselves using money. It's similar to the rich people attempting to use cash to gain seats on the lifeboats at the end of Titanic. 
While class conflict is a theme in Titanic, it never takes the front seat as it does in Train to Busan. Though more traditional films might have upper-class folks getting their chance for redemption, the folks in the front of the train who have paid for comfort get wiped out nearly completely by the end of Train to Busan. Also, the physical action of having those people in the coach section become the monsters that the upper class always feared the lower class was complete the horrifying desire to attack, bite, feed from them, and ultimately destroy them, unquote. Oh my god, yes! I love and that! I know, and I also, like, the fact that the train is even going to Busan in the first place has a lot of meaning. According to Mark Farnsworth, Siok Wu's ex-wife lives in Busan, one of the two cities not to be occupied by the North during the first phase of the Korean War. Busan has always been a beacon of hope one of the busiest seaports in the world, and a gateway to Japan, unquote. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about Seok Woo and the two foils that he has in the film. There's the father and there's the businessman. Yes, I want to start off this section by saying that... I do not have any biological children currently, and I have never been a single parent. I've watched my current partner struggle with it, and a lot of the themes, like, hit close to home when I was watching the film. And I think a lot of people can say that about their own experiences, too. Being a single parent is one of the most difficult things you can go through if you originally plan on raising a family with someone else. And yeah. there are a few scenes where I was like, oh man, like I feel for this guy. And then, yeah. you know, on the other hand, I think it says something about where we are as a society that places, like I was saying before, like more value on our work life than our family life. And I think that for some men, it is difficult to draw a line between fatherhood and what you want to be doing with your life, and the duality of that can make choosing one or the other extremely difficult. And I guess not even just for men, like for women also, or like whoever you may be, that is such a difficult topic. And yeah. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with, like, wanting it all, having a family and, like, smashing your career goals. But I think that this story, obviously, is about a father and daughter because instead of that, like, <laughs> whole, like, Cat Stevens-esque, like, father not teaching his son how to play, like, baseball theme. <laughs> yeah. Like, you have a father and a daughter learning about the world from each other. And... You know, in a way, the director sets up this really great narrative of this tiny little bean of a girl <laughs> teaching her father these moral lessons that he's forgotten as he's grown in his career and, like, strayed away from the female figures in his life. Mm. In a, I think in a way, it sort of borders on gatekeeping, but I don't think that's the intention of the director. Like, I think that Suan serves as a reminder for Seok Wu to tap into his empathy and, yeah. you know, to be a helping hand to his fellow man instead of constantly being this, like, ruthless businessman who uses people as stepping stones. And unfortunately, 
I think when you're in a line of business like that, it becomes difficult to set boundaries between work life and real life, and you kind of start to lose touch with your humanity. But this fatherhood that he's experiencing teaches him to reach into that part of himself again. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, there's also a really good piece on The Jagged Word by Tim Winterstein that discusses the topic of fatherhood in the film. And he says, failing fathers who learn from their actions and resolve to do better is not exactly a new device, but the presence of zombies forces Syokwu's hand. Infected flesh eaters tend to do that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> On this train, not only Seokwu, but everyone is put to the test. What kind of people really are the travelers? When death threatens to consume you, more or less literally, what is the foundation of your character? There is both heroism and cowardice throughout, and many of the characters, even the minor characters, are surprisingly robust. Come to the crisis of personal decision. Seokwu has two foils in the film who finally show themselves to be opposites. There is the husband and father, Sanghua, and the rich and selfish Yan Suk. Sanghua is introduced as somewhat cynical, certainly towards Seokwu and his job, even going so far as to criticize Seokwu in front of Suan. She, far from being defensive, takes it in stride as the attitude everyone has naturally towards her father. <laughs> yeah, that was- she was like, everyone's thinking it anyway. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> She's the best. Yan Suk emerges later in the film as sort of ghost of father future, the negative to Songhua's positive. Toward which of these men will Sokwu trend? What small decisions in the course of a life add up to a momentous decision that one may not be able to reverse? Yes. I think that this has got to be my favorite part of the entire film. The fact that Seokwu is faced with his two roles in life, a father and a businessman, is just so beautiful. Yes. <laughs> and I also kind of love how I also kind of love how Songhua tells him like it's okay that you work so hard. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like he like gets he like makes fun of him at first but then he like has a heart to heart with him and he's like it's okay that you work so hard like dads never get any credit for all the work that they do to keep their family afloat (laughs) and I was like oh wow and I thought that was just a really interesting thing because we always hear about mothers right in modern day yeah but we really don't hear about how much work dads do for their families, you know? Yeah. And we don't see the mother at all in this, which I thought was really interesting. Yes. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so he says the dads never get any credit for all the work they do. It's sort of like Songhua is almost like his, the Seokwu's inner father, like the gentle, caring father is almost giving him permission that, that he is a good worker. And at the same time, he sees that, Like, he has to be both. Like, he has to be both a father, like a gentle, kind, giving father, and a businessman because he has to make money somehow, I guess. Yeah. But he can't focus on too much of the businessman, which he was doing, um, because he completely shuts off everyone else in in the world. 
yeah. you know. Yeah. He doesn't care about others. And his fatherhood only extends as far as protecting his own biological daughter. You know, he yeah. and even then he is like falls asleep in the, on in the train car so like she wanders off so he like he like can't find her at first so he like lets this little girl go off by herself and he's like where'd she go and he goes looks for her and he doesn't seem very worried i know i the entire time i was having like a meltdown watching that scene i was like how could you even like <sighs> anyone oh could have just taken her and got off at the next stop like i, I could like, not even I said to myself, okay, like, at first I was like, oh, his ex-wife, you know, I don't really know about her. And now I'm like, okay, I freaking get it now. Because if <laughs> my husband did that, I would be like, you are dead meat. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so his fatherhood only extends as far as his own daughter. But even then, he's a little bit careless with her. Yes. Um, and then it's not until the end that he extends this this fatherhood to everybody that he is around. Like, he tries to save everyone. He tries to protect everyone equally. And he eventually sacrifices himself like uh, Song Hua did for the good of the people. And he saves... Um, Sung Hwa's wife and, and daughter, you know, unborn daughter, and his own daughter. Mm-hmm. You can kind of see some religious allegory, I guess, in that as well, like the sacrificial father figure. But yeah, I don't know. I just thought that that was like, that was the best part, I think, of the entire film was this message. You know, I totally agree because it's, I think, really hard to, I don't know why, but it's hard for some filmmakers to talk about fatherhood in such a way that, like, really makes you stop and think and, like, ponder what it's like to be a father. Yeah. And this was so beautifully done. Like, how you could see the separation of his character into these two, like, you have the one really good father figure and then the businessman and it's, like, living outside of Sakwu and he just like has the chance to see like okay who do I really want to be in all of this like I feel like male characters aren't really given that opportunity a lot to like see that play out in real time so that was really awesome I think yes I think so too and I also think it's really interesting that uh Young Suk who is the COO I think it's interesting that right before he turns into a zombie, he calls out for his mother. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. The fact that he is crying for his mother, like, I need to see my mother, is so is sad. It's sad, but at the same time, I'm like, oh, like, you don't understand what it's like to sacrifice yourself for others because you don't know what it's like. Because the message here is fatherhood, right? Yes. And I'm not saying that if you don't have children or you're not married that you have no idea what it's like to sacrifice. That's not what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. What I'm saying is in the context of the film, his character is is still being is still used to being taken care of, I guess, instead of taking care of others. Yes. So I just thought that was really interesting that he calls out for his mother right before he dies. So I just... That just wanted to add that. <laughs> yes. Well, and it's it's too, like, part of the whole story is that 
you know, Seokwoo is like, oh, shoot, like, my mom is dead. And he kind of relied on her to help take care of his child. And he's like, wow, like, I'm okay. I'm, like, totally alone. I'm out here by myself now. Like, it's all up to me. Yes. Once his mother died, he was alone. And I think that that was because that scene is so is kind of long. Like, it's really interesting that that scene even exists that like, why do we care about the granny? You know what I mean? Like, she's sort of a throwaway character. Like, she doesn't really need to be in the film, but she is. Yeah. And it's like she's there for a purpose. And that purpose is exactly what you just mentioned to show that he relied on his mother to help him take care of his daughter. And then when his mother went away, like when his mother died, he that was it. Like he was not the businessman with the mother taking care of him. Like he had to now own his fatherhood in that moment. Mm-hmm. I think that that's great. Let's talk about something a little bit more. Mm, it's going to be a little bit more triggering. Uh, content warning. We're going to be talking about COVID-19 and pandemic response in Train to Busan. So skip ahead if if this is maybe a topic that you're not ready to listen to. So according to Johan Hoglund in their article, Eat the Rich, Pandemic Horror Cinema... <laughs> Quote, what is disturbing to the viewer is certainly the violence she performs and spreads, but also the fact that the contagious agent is a young, diminutive, middle-class Asian woman. Her transformation into diseased other challenges not only the dichotomy uh, between health and illness, but also the stereotypical boundaries of gender, ethnicity, and class. As the film plays out, this challenge collapses into a spectacle of violence and gore that causes the utter collapse of an of any recognizable social fabric of modernity, even of the human as a meaningful species, unquote. So, yeah, really, much like how we are all currently dealing with the coronavirus, COVID-19, <laughs> everyone is at risk of this sickness. And yes, some are more susceptible to severe symptoms than others, and some are more likely to catch it due to not having any access to masks or even just basic health care. Yep. But what's really frightening is that in some cases, and no one is quite sure why yet, Perfectly healthy people are being struck hard by it, too. It's scary. Yeah. And Hoglund goes on to say, quote, Certain pandemics, like the Spanish influenza of 1918, did kill more or less indiscriminately across these barriers. Yet, in most cases, the well-fed global middle class rarely suffers dramatically from pandemics today. Armed with all the medical benefits of modernity, including vaccinations, elaborate healthcare apparatuses, and well-mounted dispensers of gelatinous disinfectant. Ew. The pandemic, I know, that was an interesting choice of words. The pandemic appears to the middle class as an anxiety and a reminder of their mortality rather than as a palpable threat to their lives or dominant position, unquote. And obviously, Holglund's article came out before COVID-19 existed, but I think this is this current virus's effect on the population is very similar to that of the Spanish influenza, so I wanted to add it. But isn't that so true, though? Like, upper middle class people are looking at COVID as maybe something of an anxiety. Yeah. And I'm thinking of, like, these celebrities who are saying imagine while they're all oh. in quarantine on Twitter 
and that's how they're dealing with you know what i mean it's like there are people dying yeah like can you maybe donate instead <laughs> like oh my God. so i just think that's really interesting yeah i mean freaking watching this film for the first time during a pandemic was i mean it was ultimately very upsetting for me <laughs> yeah yeah i'm like, sorry <laughs> no no it's 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 okay it was i it was an experience i needed to have i think <laughs> okay if you say like, so <laughs> yeah. well like the fear is palpable and everyone is pointing fingers no one really knows what's going on and like the whole trust your government theme is almost as scary as the pandemic itself like the rich seem to get special privileges while those who are in dire need end up getting sacrificed and for what so like the rich can stay safe for just a little while longer (laughs) like the fact of the matter is that I mean, pandemics don't care about a class system. They'll come for you if you're going to get infected. Like, it's going to happen. Yeah, and I think a great piece of literary fiction to complement this is Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death. Oh, my God. For real, though. That is, like, chef's kiss. Perfect for this whole thing. I love it. Oh, my God. Well, like... The other scary part about this, too, is the way that officials responded to a crisis like this, and it essentially decides what everyone else's fate is going to be. Greedy corporations try to cover up the details, and the spread of information gets fuzzy, and people don't know what to do or how to react, so they panic. They buy boatloads of toilet paper and say, fuck everyone else. Yes. Or, in this case, they slam the door in your face when you try to escape flesh-eating zombies. (laughs) I think the film says it best when each character just reacts out of fear. But, I mean, we've also seen this kind of thing play out in real time over the last few months. Like, people blaming other people and people, like, not knowing what's going on and being, like, pretty hysterical over everything. It's just... Did you see those, um, what, what was, what was it? I can't, I'm blanking right now, but it was those people talking to the representatives about wearing a mask in Florida and how they were like yelling at them. No. Oh my gosh. They were like screaming at them about how, I, I guess in Palm Springs, Florida, they were talking about how everyone was required to wear a mask in public Mm-hmm. And there were people screaming about how, like, God gave me a nose to breathe through and I have to b- use it and I can't cover it up. Oh. And, oh. yeah, and they were like, "There's this is the same reason I don't wear underwear because I got to breathe. And I'm like. <gasps> oh, how embarrassing for those people. And don't use it as an excuse to not wear a mask. Oh, my God, dude. Get a hold of yourselves. There were so many. I I would I would say watch it, but don't. It'll just make you really angry, and you'll just go to bed mad. <laughs> like, it's so it's upsetting. the mood. It's the mood lately. So <laughs> oh, just going to bed angry, just crying yourself to sleep, <laughs> just thinking about those goddamn boomer Karens and their going well, commando all the time. <laughs> it doesn't doesn't help that we have a president who refuses to wear a mask in public. Yeah, seriously, um, like, set the fucking example for everyone else. Yeah, he doesn't give a shit. 
It's Ugh. so infuriating. And now, everyone's, and now everyone's laughing at the United States because our COVID uh, numbers are super high. Everyone is recovering and enjoying their summers and we're over here like literally dying. Yeah, it's awful. <sighs> so there's that. Great. So let's get into our final thought before I spit from being so mad. <gasps> before I spontaneously combust. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I think this film kind of has a really interesting ending by having women survive. But, like, it's not just, like, a final girl, right? It's a pregnant woman, a young pregnant woman, and a little girl. So are it's women three the future? final girls. It is. It's three final girls. Oh, my gosh. It's so cute. It so, so cute. are women the future? Um. Okay. So if we're going to talk about this... We gotta talk about how badass a pregnant woman, like, a pregnant woman ends up being a survivor in this movie. Like, yes, I've never been pregnant, but god damn, I don't think I would have made it through all of the hardships that Song Kong had to go through. Like, what the heck? Yeah, I was actually thinking while watching this, I was like, damn, I could have never run that fast while pregnant like your hips are stretching to make room for a baby so it hurts a lot so just walking is like the worst thing ever so the fact that she's like running I was like good for her seriously when her husband is like uh you can run right I was like no she can't (laughs) I know and she was like I got this and I was like whoa oh my god well, also, I think that as a young child, like like Suan in this case, I would have melted after dealing with zombies oh, yeah. for like an hour. So and she does. She she breaks down a few times, but that doesn't stop her. I know, but like the women in this film are a testament to what it means to rebirth a new society after a collapse. Mm-hmm. Like truly. I don't think it's a coincidence that the men in this film are frantically searching for solutions to problems that they've made for themselves. Like, Mm, mm -hmm. it's kind of a scathing look at the male ego, if you think about it. Like, the ones responsible for the outbreak are businessmen. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like, the COO that reacts out of fear costs countless people their lives. And... Even, like, Seok Wu, who redeems himself by the end of the film, is partially at fault for splitting his family up to begin with because of his workaholism and his selfishness. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a little harsh. I know that there are probably a lot of other factors to that one, but, like, really... But there's a surface surface level, that's what we know, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And... I think, like, throughout the film, oh my god, there are, like, motorcycles drag racing down my street right now. I'm gonna set everything on fire. <laughs> okay, they're gone. Um, Throughout the film, all of the different generations of women are, like, get shit done kind of people. Mm-hmm. And on the surface, it seems like... The men take charge and protect the women, but by the end of the film, the two main female characters are the ones who end up carrying on the male legacy in this film. Like, 
Suan finishes what her father starts. She draws courage from his sacrifice instead of just giving up and breaking down, along with Seong Kyung. And Aaron Thompson writes, By shifting the focus from the fatherhood theme to one of the impact of women, the theme of the film suddenly changes. Women are the symbol of hope in this case, and how the characters choose to react to both the threat to this hope and its loss is telling. The fathers in this case literally slug their way through violent, aggressive, rotting bodies to ensure that their female offspring can continue to live. There is not hope for themselves. These men fight to ensure that in the end, their ladies get to Busan safely. Despite that they've been through hell, Suan is holding the hand of Seong Kyung at the end of the film, finishing a song at the request of her father. It's a little girl that will continue living and singing to make her daddy proud, demonstrating the lasting impact of father-child bond. Likewise, Seong Kyung will live to give birth to her daughter, who will bear the name her father picked for her before he gave his life to ensure her survival while she gestated within her mother. Both man's final act is to think of his infant daughter, whether in flashback or through the act of speech. Mm. For in Gil mm. and Yong Kuk, the prospect of life without the women they love is something so psychologically scarring they can't process the concept, choosing death over a life without these women. That speaks to a rather deep, shattering love. Someone you cannot fathom life without, dying in front of your eyes, then reanimating into a shadow of the former self. There is not carrying on for these two. No babies, no new hope, no future. With nothing to protect, the deaths of Jong Il and Jin Hee prove an event that cannot be overcome. When hope dies, these characters choose death as a way to avoid a life without love. Train to Busan cleverly inserts this symbol in a way that's been covered before. One of the key phrases used by Major West in 28 Days Later, I promise them women because women mean a future. Without the women they love, our characters can't go on. However, if there's a slight chance for survival of these females, the men step up to sacrifice. The women are hope, and even though they're beaten down and exhausted, at the end, they're still singing, demonstrating their humanity in a moment of abject heartbreak and despair. I think that goes for any relationship. Obviously, this is very gender-based with this whole men sacrificing themselves so that the women can survive. But yes, I think that that's very surface level. I think that this is about sacrificing yourself for uh people for the people that you love so that they can move on and create a better world and that's basically what happens right yeah so absolutely i think that um i think that's a really powerful message and i think that's that's why this film is so special to so many people because I, I haven't heard one person say that they hate this film oh my god serious well okay I don't like it because it, I shouldn't even say that. I love this film. I loved it. But it was so heartbreaking. Yeah, but you hate how it breaks your heart. I get it. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's good cinema, though, you know? It makes you feel those really deep, deep feelings. (laughs) It's so true. It's so true. Oh, my God. Oh, Oh, well, 
That's it for this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy. Just an update on our Patreon. If you're a new patron, we won't be sending out any physical gifts until this whole COVID-19 crap blows over, at least for the most part. So please, new patrons, hang tight. I will make sure to send you your gifts soon. However, you can also help support the show by checking out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, and more. So head on over to goodmorningnancy.com merch and just click the shirt icon and that will take you right to our shop and you can search for uh products in the search bar because sometimes they don't always pop up like on the main page there so treat yourself won't you oh and please 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 consider donating what you can to the black lives matter movement as well as to trans lifeline links are in the show notes of this episode Yes, and we know times are tough right now, so a free way to help the show is by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye! <laughs>